we turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. The book of Revelation chapter 5. We'll read chapters 5 and 6 in connection with Lord's Day 19, which speaks of the wonder of Christ seated at God's right hand and then returning in glory. Here in Revelation 5, we have an insight into heaven and the glorious place that God gives to the Lamb of God and His continued work then in opening the seals and executing God's counsel. We hear the inspired Word of God. And I saw in the right hand of Him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book? and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by the blood, by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand. And thousands of thousands sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb for ever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth for ever and ever. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. 
And a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked. And behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed with him. And power was given unto him over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal... And lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated in the basis of this passage and many others to which we'll make reference, we have the teaching of Lord's Day 19, question and answers 50 through 52. It's found in the back of our Psalters on page 11. Question 50, why is it added and sitteth at the right hand of God? Because Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, that he might appear as head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. What profit is this glory of Christ, our head, unto us? First, that by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon us, his members, and then 
that by his power he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to thee that Christ will come again to judge the quick and the dead? That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven, who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, John received a wonderful revelation of Christ's eternal triumph when he was on Patmos and he heard one of the four beasts say, as with a noise of thunder, recorded here in chapter 6, come and see. And as he came, what is it that he saw? And I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. The lamb that was slain was found worthy to open the seals of the book of God's counsel. That lamb had been exalted to a place of glory, a place of esteem. He sits on that white horse of victory, bearing the crown that was given him. And he sits as the one who rules as Lord and King of all, executing judgment. His victory is indicated by the color of that horse, white, and the fact that he goes forth now to conquer and conquering. Now the significance of that is our Lord going forth with the preaching of the gospel and the power of the word and spirit accomplishing the purpose that God has ordained. Jesus Christ in his exalted glory is here seen by John. And John sees him in the work that he's continuing to do from heaven. He sees him with that bow with which he will destroy all his enemies. He sees, the, he sees him sending forth his word and through the power of that word, saving his church and those that believe. No enemy can hinder his progress as he involves himself in this grand course. Now, for the saints of Christ, this is of great encouragement. The book of Revelation records the struggles, the trials, the difficulties that face the church in the last days. And as the apostle is given this vision to see those troubles that will come upon the church, God gives him interludes that open his eyes to God's care for and God's protection of his people. The church is afflicted. The church experiences trials. There are those who have been killed, slain for the word of God. And there are those yet that will be. And so in the face of all of that, here is the encouragement. Jesus Christ is on the throne. He's seated at God's right hand, ruling all things. Weep not. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and glory and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 12. There's no distress too great that he's unable to conquer. 
He will lead His church through the water and through the fire. He's the one ordaining all of this. And that great day of wrath is to come. But who shall be able to stand? All those who are found in Him. That's our comfort and our encouragement. He will deliver by His mighty hand and by His wondrous work. And so we look at Christ's final exaltation, noting His seated at God's right hand, His final return, and the profit of it for us. Christ has ascended into heaven for this end, that He might appear as head of His church. The Apostles' Creed speaks here of Jesus' ascension into heaven in the previous Lord's Day, and now His being seated at God's right hand. The Catechism separates those truths and demonstrates the significance of each, and we understand their relationship. The fact of His ascension gave occasion for the way to His being exalted. His exaltation is the fruit of His ascension. So that He not only ascended into heaven, but then God gave Him to be seated at His right hand in the height of glory and honor. We as believers will ascend into heaven and receive the glory that is heavenly, but we will not be placed at God's right hand. That was unique to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we have a question concerning this particular meaning of this designation. Do we take this literally? And we understand that, that the idea of the right hand is a figurative expression that has to do with that position of highest honor and glory. It's not as though Jesus is sitting somewhere necessarily in heaven. We know God is a spirit. We know as a spirit, God doesn't have a right hand or a left hand. Seated at God's right hand denotes the highest glory that's possible. As a king would place at his right hand that one whom he would entrust the care of his kingdom. We read concerning Solomon that he caused a seat to be set for his mother Bathsheba. And she sat on his right hand for a time until she died. The right hand being that place of honor. God's power, God's majesty, God's glory are spoken of as His right hand. And frequently the Bible uses that kind of emphasis to stress the significance of Jesus' exaltation. Jesus is taken and He's placed at God's right hand. That is, highest honor and glory is given to Him. God spoke of that glory, that honor that would come to his own beloved son often. And it was prophesied again and again through the Old Testament. Isaiah spoke of it in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Again and again, we find that emphasis through the Psalms. We find that emphasis in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. Notice, one like unto the Son of Man is brought with the clouds into heaven. That's the ascension. Daniel here prophesying of that event that's going to take place and then speaking of the fact not only is he ascended, he's also then given 
this dominion, this glory. Psalm 110, verse 1, talks about Jesus seated at God's right hand till God makes his enemies his footstool. That is, his feet are upon his enemies. And that's a picture that was given again and again by conquering kings who would place their feet on the necks of their enemies and would demonstrate in that their power, their authority, and their majesty. Matthew 26, verse 64 records Jesus speaking of this glory when he's being tried before the high priest. Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus knew that he had to die, but he knew his death was with a view to that wonder, that he would be exalted and he would be placed in that position of highest honor. And so after deep humiliation, after Jesus is born of a woman, takes upon himself our state under sin, shame, guilt, dies, descends into hell, experiences the horror of death in its fullness, buried. He's then exalted, raised from the dead, ascends into heaven, and is given this glorious position at God's right hand. Revelation 5 presents Jesus Christ now in heaven as the lamb that had been slain. He now takes that sacrifice that he's made and he presents it to God as the king and the priest. As he finds himself in heaven having earned all the blessings of salvation for his church, he now showers those blessings upon his people, especially through the outpouring of his Spirit. Revelation 5 brings us into heaven where God holds the book of his counsel, all the things that must yet take place. And the question is asked, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? That book has seven seals that bind it together. And each of those seals needs to be broken in order that the book then can be opened. Who can open the book of God's counsel? The things that must yet come to pass. No one is worthy until the Lamb is identified. No man in heaven, no man on earth, no man is able to execute God's counsel and to open the wonders of it. But there was one that was worthy, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is worthy. Now, not only does he take that book, and he begins to open the seals of it, but he actually executes now that glorious counsel of God, so that that book contained all the things that must come to pass. And Jesus not only now opens the seals, but he now brings those things actively to pass as the one ruling all things at God's right hand. According to his human nature then, Jesus is no longer with us. He's in heaven. He executes this glorious work, exalted in highest honor and authority. And the seating at God's right hand is a goal then that's been reached. It was prophesied of, and now he attains to that position in his human nature. 
Now, it makes no difference in the glory of Jesus Christ, whether he's seated at God's right hand or whether he's standing. And it's striking that the Bible speaks about both. How are we to understand that? Many passages refer to Jesus seated at God's right hand. There's another passage in Acts 7 where Stephen is given his defense, where he, at the conclusion of it, looks up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now, the seated at God's right hand designates quiet, peaceful, glorious rest that belongs to the Son of God. He finished his work, and now he's seated at God's right hand, able to execute that work with power and with glory. And he's doing so as the one who executes that finished work. The priests were always busy in the Old Testament. Never were they finished with their labors. Always there was more for them to do. Jesus now enters into the finished wonder of what he's accomplished. He sits in glory, resting with divine contentment in the work that's been performed and in the favor of the Father's fellowship. As he's seated and as he enters into that rest, he now executes God's counsel in order to bring his people, every last one of those whom he has been given by the Father, into the same glory of that eternal rest. His standing on the account of Stephen is significant in this, that he's recorded there eagerly to serve the church and to assist her. And especially, how does he serve his church and assist his church? By taking his saints and bringing them to be with him, to enjoy that rest and that glory that is his in heavenly bliss. And so we read there, Jesus standing in order to receive Stephen into the glory of heaven. And what a beautiful picture that our exalted Lord is at God's right hand, executing all the affairs of the world and rising up in order to bring every one of his sheep into his fold, that none might be lost. That Christ is serving his church and welcoming each to the wonder of that glory. What a beautiful encouragement God gives to us as we go through life's pilgrimage. That Jesus Christ is the one, through the Father, governing all things. God had ordained him to be head of the church from all eternity. And that's recorded in Colossians 1, verse 18. Speaking of the fact that God had chosen him to be the head of the church, according to his counsel, so that there was never a point ever where the church was without her head. From eternity, God had ordained Jesus would be the head of that church. But then in time, God brought about the realization of that wonder. When the headship of Jesus Christ became revealed now outside of his counsel, in that his own son was born, his own son died on Calvary, and then was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now brought into God's presence. Placed in that position of glory and honor. Now the head is exalted in order to govern. And that government has a purpose. It's for the salvation of his church. It's so that he can 
pour his blessings upon his children and receive and bring every last one of them to be with him in order that he might be one with them. And that's the work that our Lord now is carrying out in glory at God's right hand. Now the Bible makes a clear, significant distinction between the work as king. He has power, all power in heaven and in earth. And according to that power, he breaks his enemies with a rod of iron. He dashes them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But at the same time, he rules with, a, with grace and with peace upon his church. So that we have that important distinction. He's ruling over the world by his might and by his power. Ruling with authority as the one who stands over his enemies with his foot on their necks. He's overcome the power of the devil. But at the same time, ruling with grace over his church. Bringing his church into the knowledge and wonder of the salvation he has accomplished for her. Saving their souls from death and bringing them into the enjoyment of his gracious preservation and care so that no enemy can harm them. And that's the encouragement that Jesus gives here in chapter 6 especially as we have those souls under the altar. They've been killed for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they're crying under that altar according to verse 10. How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And the answer is he's coming. Precisely to do that. To judge the wicked and to save his church. As the savior of his church, by the power of his spirit, he implants his law within our hearts. He gives to us new hearts by work, virtue of regeneration. And he works in us now the wonder by which he causes us to walk in obedience to him, to pursue his paths, and to live in the conscious wonder of the victory that's ours in him. He preserves us in all of our temptations. Killed for the sake of the faith. And he talks in verse 11 about the reality. There are others who yet are going to die for the sake of their faith. But none of those given him by the Father will be lost. Every last one of them brought to the fullness of the glory of their salvation. This dominion, this power that Jesus Christ now executes, he didn't obtain for himself, but by God. God the Father exalts his own Son and now gives him this calling to rule all things for the salvation of the church and for the judgment of the wicked world. And so the Catechism directs us then to the reality of the final return of Jesus when that will be finally accomplished. With a lifted head, I look, we read here, for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven. Notice the spiritual perspective that's necessary here. In the midst of our sorrows and persecutions, we look to heaven. We turn heavenward. We're not focused on living for the things of this life. If we were, there wouldn't be those persecutions 
and those sorrows. But it's precisely because we know this earth is not our home. And we're not living for the things here below. That there are those persecutions and those difficulties. Those persecutions and difficulties arise from the fact that we confess thy will be done. And we want to do what Christ would have us to do. And when we pursue Christ, we're going to face difficulties. We're going to lose jobs. We're going to lose friendships. We're going to lose honor and fame. We may lose our position in the midst of the world. Following after Christ is not popular from the perspective of the things of this world. And we know it's going to become less and less popular. For the child of God, living for the sake of God, he's not establishing friendships with the wicked. He's seeking spiritual friendship. He's seeking to live for God and for his glory. He's living for the things that are above. So that the confession of the catechism here is in the context of the antithesis. What is the antithesis? The fact that I'm living consciously for God, saying yes to the things of God and saying no to the things of the devil and the things of the world. And as I live for God and for his glory, not just praying thy will be done, but living it from the heart, desiring not my will, God's will be done in my life. I need to battle against my own sinful nature. There is hurt that is inflicted because of my pride and because of my own desires. And as the child of God stands for God in the midst of this world, he faces struggles, challenges, difficulties. The hope of Christ's coming and a sanctified walk go hand in hand. Living that sanctified life out of Christ. More and more, the longing is for Christ to come back again. And increasingly, we long for the future glory that is ours with Him. This confession is being robbed of us in a number of ways. First of all, the affluence of our age. The prosperity that we know draws and attracts us to live for the things here below. And so we begin to live for the things that are earthly. We pursue the things that are here below. And we're not living in earnest anticipation of Christ's coming. We're not seeking the things that are above. We're happy here. We enjoy the things that we have. We're reveling in the things below. Sometimes it's a situation by which we pursue the way of the flesh the way of sin. And one who forsakes the doctrine of Jesus Christ, who forsakes the will of God, erases then any confession of hope or expectation of Christ's final return. We know there's a God. We know what's going to happen. All men will face judgment. And for the soul that continues unrepentantly in sin, there's only damnation. And so that one tries to erase all thoughts of God, tries to eliminate God from his or her life, tries to live in such a way that Christ is not going to come back again. There will be no final judgment. There's not going to be any return of Christ. And what do they do? They live as those who were prior to the flood. History repeats itself. And God gives us the history of the flood to warn us 
How is it that men and women are going to be living as the end of the world gets closer? They're going to be acting as though the world is never going to end. They're going to be living in such a way that they give themselves to the pursuit of sin, believing and convincing themselves there's not going to be any judgment. There's not going to be any accountability. There is no God. There is no judgment. Christ will return in order to burn the chaff and harvest the wheat. And all the open, secret enemies of Christ will be cast into everlasting perdition. His elect translated into everlasting bliss and glory with him. No wicked man will be able to deny that there is a God in the burning fire of judgment. His conscience will no more be silenced or deceived. He will know that there is a God. And Christ will cause all men to bow before him and to acknowledge him as Lord of all. And they will suffer eternally the wrath of God without end to all eternity. An awful day for those who are apart from Christ. And beloved, we hear that warning and we need to repent. We need to turn. But that's the warning we need to bring also to those whom we come into contact with, who live in this manner, as though the world is never going to end, as though they can give themselves to the pursuit of sin without consequence. We warn them, as did Enoch of old, as did Noah of old, as did Jesus. But for those who are in Christ, what a wonder. There is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. God's children are translated to be with Christ eternally. And what a day that will be. A day not of sorrow, a day of rejoicing, a day of earnest expectation, a day when God will translate His chosen ones to be with Him in heavenly bliss and joy, washing away all tears, Eliminating all sorrow, all sighing, all struggles with regard to physical, spiritual, emotional difficulties. And he'll give us a perfect soul, a perfect body to serve our king eternally in perfection without sin according to the desires of his heart. Thy will be done, will be realized as now we will serve him perfectly to all eternity. This blessed inheritance of the kingdom is given to those who are God's children. Those for whom God has prepared it before the foundations of the world were established. God is not idle. God is constantly active with his great power directing all things toward that final goal. And he calls us to watch and to pray so that in our sorrows, in our persecutions, as we seek to live out of that antithetical walk, and as we face opposition with uplifted head, we look for Christ to come again. He who before offered himself on my behalf, he's coming again. And he's coming in order to bring me into the joy and wonder of that which he's earned for me. The white horse is running. Now, this is the same promise that the angels gave to the saints who were waiting on Mount Olivet as they watched Jesus ascend into heaven. The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go up. 
And as the white horse now runs, that's the great and grand sign that must be realized. The preaching to all nations in order that Christ might come. The gospel going to all in order that every last one of God's children would be brought to repentance so that his work is brought to its final culmination. And the Bible teaches one glorious coming. It teaches as... Revelation 6 here sets forth the various signs that accompany that coming. Signs that involve for the church hardship, difficulty, death, famine, war, trouble. But all ordained to make clear to us this world is not our home. And to move us so that with uplifted head we look for the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. What profit then is there for us? By his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly graces upon us, his members. He pours out heavenly graces upon us now in order to make it so that instead of being earthly minded more and more, we're spiritually minded. He gives us a spiritual life now so that the life we live is not merely an earthly life. And then by his Spirit, pours these spiritual graces upon us so that we look to Him, and so that we seek to give glory and honor unto Him. And by those spiritual graces, emphasizes and stresses the spiritual nature of His kingdom. His kingdom is not a kingdom that's earthly. It's not a kingdom that's going to be found here on earth. Our calling is not to try to make this world a better place. Our calling is to be stewards of what God has given to us. Our calling is to witness to those around us, concerning Christ and His coming again. Our calling is to expose sin, to testify of the holiness and the righteousness of our Savior, the necessity of repentance, and the wonder of forgiveness through Him alone. His kingdom is where He pours out His heavenly graces And where is that? It's not a kingdom of this world. It's a kingdom where individuals then are regenerated, where they're given new hearts. It's a kingdom where individuals are called out of darkness into light. It's a kingdom by which individuals are called to live unto him and to show forth his praise. It's a kingdom that's spiritual. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. Christ is the head of the church. And we can do nothing apart from Him. And it's that living connection to Christ that stirs us and strengthens us. We live unto Him. We show forth His praise. His work at God's right hand is a tremendous blessing for us. We can't see it. We don't understand it. Even the saints in heaven don't understand what's all going on here on earth. They're crying out from the altar, pleading with God to bring all things to that end, to cease the troubles and the struggles that the saints are experiencing, to bring them to glory and to avenge and judge the wicked. But God is teaching here in these passages in Revelation, patience. There's a purpose that must be fulfilled. And Jesus at God's right hand is laboring diligently with a view to that purpose. He has the book, and he's opening that book. 
He's causing the whole counsel of God now to be realized in a manner that perfectly pursues the glory and honor of God. And that may mean that we're hurt at times in accidents. We battle with stress. We experience friction in our families, troubles within the church. We have sleepless nights. We know pain. We know sorrow. We're reminded of temptation and the powers of sin and temptation as we give in. And we know the consequences of that sin in our lives. There's shame. There's guilt. All of this, according to the perfect counsel and plan of the one seated on the throne. But our comfort, our encouragement in all of this is that Jesus Christ, my Lord, is not idle. Nothing is happening by chance. He's seated at the right hand as Prince of my Lord. And he's the one who's directing everything to the glory and honor of God. Revelation 6 directs us to the one seated on the throne and to the confession concerning comfort and peace that that provides. What good would the blessed exaltation of Jesus do for us if we have no part in him? But beloved, we are united to him. And as our head, he's ruling on our behalf. And he took us with him to heaven in principle so that already now we have a place in heaven. But he needs to work it all out. In our lives, preparing us for it, working all things out in the world in order to bring all of his elect to be born and to be brought to conversion. And he's the one who now is pouring out his spirit from heaven to accomplish that wonder. Working in the hearts of the one who's a stranger, an enemy of Jehovah, and yet an elect from the very beginning. Planting the seed of faith in the hearts and soul of his elect children so that they cry out to him, so that they find their salvation and hope in him. Breaking their pride, bringing them to their knees, causing them to look to him and to know their salvation in him alone. And central to all these heavenly graces is the forgiveness of sin. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And the Spirit assures us of that forgiveness, of that reconciliation, and gives us to know this great God is your Father. And He holds you, and He preserves you through all of your sorrows, through all of your persecutions. And He's the one that directs your eyes to heaven and causes you to live not for the things here below, but an earnest expectation of the heavenly graces that fully will be yours in glory. What does this mean, beloved, for the church? We are safe. What a wondrous and glorious message. We are safe despite the most bitter of opposition that we face. Question is asked in verse 17, who shall be able to stand? And the answer is, my church, my saints, they will stand. And they will prevail because they're found in Christ. Because the Lamb was worthy. Beloved, our strength is not in ourselves. It's in Christ. And God directs our eyes to Christ and to the wonder of His perfect work on our behalf. Many are the enemies who seek to destroy the church and God's saints. Chief of whom is the devil. The devil tries to put God-dishonoring thoughts in our minds. 
so that we are distressed. The devil tries to direct us more and more to the things of this earth so that we lose our comfort and lose our hope. The devil tries to create havoc in our lives through the terrors of the devil. Sin opposes us. Sin wreaks havoc in our lives. It draws us away from God. But beloved, we need not fear. Because Jesus Christ is our mighty Lord and King. And He is able and willing to work in our hearts true repentance, true sorrow for sin. We have a mighty Lord who defends and preserves and keeps us. And His is the power. His is the might. The glory of the church is the glory of Christ. And the glory of Christ is the only power from which the devil flees. In our head, beloved, we have the victory. And the saints and the church find their comfort then in the glory of the head. And we see that reflected through all of history. Cain killed Abel. The devil sought to destroy the seed of the woman. But he didn't succeed. God raised up Seth. The devil tried to destroy the church so that the church was down to only eight souls before the flood. But God preserved his church. He sent water by which he saved his church. Pharaoh tried to destroy the Israelites, thinking he had them under his control. God preserved his remnant through mighty Wondrous works. Balaam sought to curse Israel. God kept them safe. The wicked ones cannot touch God's children. The glorious victory of the church in her head, Jesus Christ, moved Martin Luther to express in song. Martin Luther, who knew the opposition of the devil, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what great wonders thou hast performed for us. We look to Christ. He who is seated at thy right hand, directing all the events and course of history, directing our lives, and the one who showers upon us heavenly blessings to turn us from our sin, to work repentance within us, to cause us to grow in holiness, and to cause us with uplifted heads more and more to look unto thee and to know that our victory and our hope is spiritual and heavenly. Amen. We turn to Psalter number 264.